Good morning. All right, here's the deal. Here at Fort Thomas, at the Fort Thomas campus, I want us to have more people in ministry serving less often. There. That's where I'm headed. That's the main point. I want us to have more people in ministry serving less often. That's where we're going. Turning your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Uh, the Sunday after Thanksgiving in our church is traditionally a Sunday where we call Testimony Sunday. We share testimony of God's faithfulness, His goodness. It is, in a very real sense, a way of extending the Thanksgiving holiday beyond Thursday and doing so in a God-focused, in a Christ-centered way. But this is 2020. If there's one thing we're experiencing throughout 2020, it's a radical change of plans. And so, in a sense... If I'm going to call an audible and change our testimony service into a regular service during which I preach, tis the season. But let me tell you why I want to do this today. Earlier this month, we held a core team meeting. You say, what's a core team? I say, I'm glad you asked. Our core team consists of our ministry leaders. Pastor Aaron Barnett, our associate campus pastor, he oversees our student ministry. Mark and Hannah Pepper lead our welcome ministry. Jeremiah Hines leads our worship ministry. Amber Jones leads our children's ministry. John and Stacey Wingfield lead our logistics ministry. And Brian Clark oversees our audiovisual ministry. These, along with our elders and deacons, are a few of my favorite people. These people tirelessly serve in order to ensure our church not just functions, but does so with excellence. Now, For some time now, I've thought we needed a fairly big change in how we do what we do at Fort Thomas in a few key areas. I've been speaking with Pastor Aaron about this for over a year now. I've spoken to a few core team members throughout the fall. Then we held a core team meeting and I rolled out what I'm about to share with you. And several of them, including the elders that attend here at Fort Thomas, thought it best that I share it with you from the pulpit. And today presented an opportunity to do just that. So... Here we go. Luke chapter 10, pick it up in verse 38. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. This is what the word of God says. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Then tell her to to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Here's what we have going on in this portion of the Gospel of Luke. I know we're going through a Luke series, and this is Luke chapter 10. At the rate we're going, it's going to be like 2031 before we get to this chapter, so I have no concern that you're going to like remember this and catch me on a summer rerun when we preach this, when we do get to Luke chapter 10. But since we've not been at this portion of Luke thus far, let me explain to you a little bit of what's going on. This portion of Luke's Gospel is dedicated to the final phase, if you will, of Jesus' earthly Ministry. You'll notice from about Luke 9 to about Luke 19 during Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus does maybe zero, if not very little, miracles. He's focusing this portion of his ministry on teaching his disciples. He does a ton of teaching. 
In fact, today we're looking at verses 38 to 42. Just one verse prior is the end of his teaching on how we're to love our neighbors. It ends in Luke 10, 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you look at 10, 43 and following, you'll see Jesus start to teach on the Lord's Prayer. This is a heavy teaching portion of the Gospel of Luke. And we know that Luke uh, is recording what happened to Jesus as he went on his way. And so if you pick it up in verse 38, where it says, Now as they went on their way, they're heading to Jerusalem, and they enter um, a village. We know that village is the village of Bethany because we know that that's where Mary and Martha lived. The Gospel of John tells us that Bethany is about two miles-ish outside of Jerusalem, so they're getting closer and closer. Verse 38, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Now, the way Luke puts it there, a woman named Martha versus just saying, and Martha welcomed them into her house. This likely indicates that this is when Jesus met Martha, right? Because he goes out of the way to say, and a woman named Martha. And then later on, you see in verse 39, she had a sister called Mary. And so this is the introduction, we believe, of Jesus into meeting Mary and Martha. Because if he had met him before, Luke likely would have just said, and Mary and Martha welcomed them into her house. So this likely means Jesus hasn't met them before, And the way this account progresses probably shows that. Verse 38, a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're familiar with this portion of scripture, or even if you're not, and you just heard it for the first time as we read through it together, it's pretty straightforward. Jesus comes to Mary and Martha's house. He teaches on what we don't know, but he teaches. Mary listens and sits, but Martha is so busy, busy, busy that she misses out on the opportunity of a lifetime, hearing the word of God from the word made flesh, the word of God. And so Jesus gently corrects her in verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. And so I remember from years of teaching in student ministry, I would encourage students at their, as they're reading through accounts of Scripture, and especially as they're reading through parables, to find the hero and find the zero. Which means in that narrative, there's probably someone we're supposed to emulate and probably someone whose actions we're supposed to avoid. That's pretty harsh to call them a zero. I know, but they're teens. They can take that. So find the hero, find the zero. In this story, Mary would be the hero. Jesus is always the hero. I know, you tricked me. Setting Jesus aside, what with him being the son of God. If we look at the other people in the story... Mary's doing what Jesus lauds and says she's doing the good thing. And Martha's the one being corrected. So we have two people here. Mary sits, Martha serves, Martha gets corrected. And so sitting is better than serving. And I think that's how it's normally told. And I don't think that's altogether untrue, but I don't know if that's the best application for us to see. Let me be very clear. Jesus always says what he means and means what he says. Therefore, when he says what he does in verse 42, but one thing is necessary, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. When Jesus says that, he certainly means it. No question. Every word, Mary is doing something better than Martha. You can't sit long enough at the feet of Jesus. Ever. Brad and I talk about reading our Bibles. How much of it? All of it, right? We say that all the time. That's not because we're really excited about a book that we like or that we get some kickback from a publisher if you read your Bible, how much of it, all of it. We wholeheartedly believe that all the time, but especially in these dark and uncertain times, you need 
Jesus. I need Jesus. And I know that you and I can't pull a Mary and literally sit at his feet because his feet are not with us. But really, you need to realize all you lack is his feet. You have his word. Then anytime you sit and open up your eyes to the word of God, you can be hearing the very words of Jesus. You're just missing his physical presence. You say, just? Yeah, just. You have his word. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you, which is better than having Jesus beside you because the Holy Spirit never leaves you. That's what Jesus talks about. When I leave, I'll send a helper. You and I as Christians have that helper, not just kind of visiting every once in a while. He made his abode, his dwelling place, his home within us. You need sitting time for sure. You get it a little bit here on a Sunday morning, and that's great. But listen to me. Our services are an hour-ish long. There's 167 other hours in the week. And it's great that you get your sitting time here on Sunday morning. But listen to me. The more important time, the more important time is Tuesday or a random Thursday or Monday. We're blessed to be led in song by the team that works hard to practice and lead us in singing to God. Jeremiah leads us so well. So does Natalie. But only Brooke and Clay get to wake up next to them on a Monday. You don't and I don't. And so you need to figure out how to pull a Mary and sit at the feet of Jesus on your own. Sunday mornings aren't going to cut it for you. And if they are cutting it for you now, I'm telling you they're not going to cut it for long. You need sitting time at the feet of Jesus. So what about you? What is your Sitting plan. How will you sit at Jesus' feet this week? And I ask you that, and I want you to consider that because that's never just going to happen by itself. You know, I had this busy day planned with all these things to do, and all of a sudden I found myself sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word or reading his word. Lo and behold, said no one ever. That just doesn't happen. And so it behooves us to hear the words of Jesus today who reminds us that not Martha, but Mary, who sat at Jesus' feet listening to him teach on what we don't know, but listening to him teach, she was listening. She chose what Christ refers to as the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jeremiah reminded us of the the fact that Jesus is immutable, right? The immutability of God. That's a fancy word for saying he doesn't change. Yesterday, today, and forever, he's the same. Jesus says, Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her, which reminds us of what Isaiah says in Isaiah 40 and verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And so it's important that we think through, how am I going to make sure I can sit at the feet of Jesus when I'm not in church, when people have not orchestrated a service for me, they've not put it all together, but when it's just Wednesday, right? It's just Monday. How do I make sure that I still hear from Jesus? And it'll look different for everyone, but to make sure that we get that sitting time with Jesus. So it's important that we know what Mary is being lauded for and what Jesus wanted Martha to see. However, equally important, I think we need to see where Martha was in error, right? We know what to do, but what are we not to do? In other words, how do we not do what Martha was being corrected for? And here's the thing. I don't think Martha was doing anything wrong. 
You say, I feel like Jesus disagrees with you. Hold on. I don't think it was what she was doing. I think it was how she was thinking. I think it was her mindset, the attitude of her heart that Jesus gently corrected. I think Martha is in a bad frame of mind. I think she's in a bad place. Why? I don't know. I don't know what's going on with her. I don't know what baggage she's bringing into the scene. But I just think she's in a bad frame of mind. And here's why. Look at verse 40. It says, but Martha was distracted with much serving. It doesn't just say that Martha was serving a lot and this was wrong. She was a busybody and she needed to chill. That's not what it says. Verse 40 says, Martha was distracted with much serving. That word translated distracted in the Greek, it's the only time it's ever used in the whole New Testament. And here's what it means. To be dragged away mentally. To be dragged away in one's mind. To be driven about mentally. I'm sure we can all relate to that, right? How many of us have not had something weighing on our minds and on our hearts so much that even when you don't want to be thinking about it, you find that you're thinking about it. You're dragged away mentally. You're being driven about mentally in your mind because it's hard not to think about the thing that's weighing on you so heavily. Martha was being dragged away mentally. He's not commenting on her actions, but her mindset. He, more than anyone, Jesus, the Son of God, knows that she's not in a good frame of mind, that her heart isn't at ease. And if you look at Martha's actions, she kind of proves that, doesn't she? Have you ever noticed, if you look in verse 40, Jesus didn't start this conversation with Martha. Martha did. Uh, Verse 40, Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve? So let's just... Stop right there. Think about the times when you might look at someone and say, don't you care? Do you even care? I would venture to say, anytime you ask that question, you are not really asking that question. Don't you care? You know what that means? You don't care. Right? I don't think you could ever go up to someone and go, don't you even care? And they could go, I'm really glad you asked me that because now it has an opportunity to answer. Yes, I actually do. And you're like, good, because I was just checking. All right, thanks. That's not how we roll. If you're looking at someone and saying, do do you even care? Usually what you're saying, you're implying you do not care. It's a question, but it's really an accusation. Martha is looking at Jesus and saying, you don't care. You don't care that I'm left here to do all the work, to do all these things alone. You don't care. She's accusing Jesus, if you're ever accusing Jesus, you are not in a good frame of mind. Verse 40. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Awesome. So she goes from accusing Jesus to telling Jesus what to do. So we're going from bad to worse, right? She's not in a good place. Tell her to help me. Hey, Jesus. Maybe you didn't notice the table doesn't set itself. The food doesn't prepare itself. The drinks don't, they don't pour themselves. No, actually, I'm doing all that. So here's how you can maybe start caring. Throw me a bone here. Tell my sister Mary, studious Mary, sitting around listening to maybe get up off her duff and help a sister out. Hey, Mary, let's listen more kitchen. Huh? Come on, Mary, help us out. What did Jesus say in response? I think oftentimes when we reflect back upon this account, we say, well, Jesus tells her to stop 
serving and she should really be sitting and listening. That's not what he says. In fact, Jesus, wearied from his journey, probably appreciates someone checking on the turkey every once in a while. We just finished celebrating Thanksgiving. I don't know who prepared the meal for you, but I don't think you were upset that they were in the kitchen as much as they were. Wow, really? Not even hanging out with us. No, I think as you're eating that meal, you're like super grateful that they toiled in the kitchen. Right? Someone's got to keep an eye on the turkey. Someone needs to open the can of ocean spray cranberry sauce with the lines so that they can serve the best part of the Thanksgiving meal, which is that. The ocean spray cranberry sauce with the lines that kind of jiggles. Thank you. Preach it. And then you slice it and it just, it just falls just like the framers of our country would have. Just, it's amazing. I read one year that Ocean Spray decided to make the cans different so that the lines wouldn't be there. People literally complained, as they should have. And so the lines are back, as our framers would have it. Nor does Jesus correct her for what she's doing. Nor does Jesus say what she was doing was wrong. Jesus doesn't even tell her to stop. In fact... If you would flip over to John chapter 12, I want to show you something. John chapter 12, and take a look at verse 1. Because this is another time when we see Mary and Martha. John 12 and verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, I'm only laughing because... Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, excuse me, no, Lazarus was raised from the dead in John chapter 11. And it just seems that there's several times after that, when Lazarus is mentioned, where John feels the need to say, Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Can we all get that straight here? So it says that right here. Came to Bethany where Lazarus was, by the way, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Uh, Verse 2, so they gave a dinner for him there, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at a table, which is probably super distracting, right? Because I don't care how good the meal is, you're all staring at Lazarus, right? Because he was dead. And he's just eating and eating and eating, and they're like, just kind of, you can't not, how do you not look at the guy who was just risen from the grave? That's pretty hard. Anyway, that's not the point. So Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, get that, that's who Jesus raised from the dead. Verse two, so they gave a dinner for him there. What was Martha do? It says, Martha what? Served, and Lazarus is one of those reclining with him at a table, and Jesus rebuked Martha for serving. Nope. So here we see Martha doing the same thing, but Jesus doesn't say, Why you, do, you don't learn, girl. What's the problem? I don't think what Martha was doing was the problem. I think it was how she was doing and the mindset with which she did it. Jesus doesn't rebuke her for serving there. He doesn't correct her. He doesn't tell her to stop serving. Listen, at least in part, what I want to do today is dispel and rip apart one of the saddest false dichotomies is that you're either worshiping or serving. You're either worshiping or serving. Those two things are different. And if you're serving over there, you're not worshiping because if you were worshiping, you'd be in here. 
Worship takes place here. Serving in ministry takes place elsewhere. But the worshiping happens in here. Whether or not your work for Jesus is worship of Jesus is mostly up to you. Whether or not what you're doing for Jesus is worship of Jesus is in large part up to you. Take it for someone who works for Jesus. It's been my vocation. It's my job. It's my career for close to 20 years now to serve God and his people. And I'm laughing because I recently had the opportunity to visit my, my grandfather, who's 92. 92. And he's, he, uh, he does this every once in a while. He, he knows I work for a church. He's 92. His mind's kind of going. But even when, he, when, when he, was, he was younger, he still didn't kind of get it. He's loosely Catholic. He thinks I'm a priest who got married and had kids. He doesn't really understand. And so he goes, Peter, you still, you still doing that church thing? And I'm like, yeah, Pop, I'm doing it. He goes, huh. That's probably like your thing forever, huh? I'm like, yeah, you know, after the 20-year trial run, I've really decided to plant my flag here, Pop. I think I'm going to stick with it. He goes, oh, all right. And we move on. Whether or not my work for Jesus is worship of Jesus is mostly up to me. My mindset as I do what I do. You see me hopping around up here, welcoming you, preaching, praying, doing my thing. But friends, you need to realize how much of that can just be like the right mix of personality traits with the right amount of caffeine. What makes my work for Jesus, worship of Jesus, isn't what I do when you see me, but what I do for him when nobody sees me. And it's the same for you. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Right in the center, in Matthew 6, Jesus teaches about five things. Giving, praying, fasting, laying up treasures in heaven, and not being anxious. All five of which really need to be done in secret. Three of which Jesus straight up says, do this privately. Matthew 6, verse 3. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Two verses later, Matthew 6 and verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And guess what? And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew 6, verses 17 and following. When you fast, anoint your head with oil, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. And guess what? You guessed it. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Whether or not what you do for Jesus is worship of Jesus is mostly up to you. It has very little to do with what people see and very much to do with what only God sees. Your attitude about what you're doing. And if you have this false dichotomy of I worship when I'm sitting and when I'm not sitting I'm not worshiping then yes, what you're doing is not an act of worship to the Lord. But what a sad way to live because you're only sitting in this room one hour a week. 167 other hours. No worship. I worship one hour a week. And I don't think that's what God has called us to do. I think this is a form of worship, but I think our lives are lives of worship. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Uh, The book of Romans, chapter 12. Romans, chapter 12. Take a look at verse 1. 
Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, your act of worship. What is your act of your bodies? Head to toe, inside and out, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So it's not just a one-time thing, but your life would be sacrificially lived in such a way that it would be holy and acceptable to God because this is our reasonable act of worship to the Lord. And so we worship the Lord as we work. We worship the Lord as we eat. We worship the Lord as we sing. We worship the Lord in our community groups. We worship the Lord as we sit in this room. We worship the Lord as we hold a baby. We worship the Lord as we play pool. We worship the Lord as we play cards. We worship the Lord as we watch a movie. And we worship the Lord in whatever we're doing. Our lives are lives of worship. It's not that worship happens in here one hour a week, 167 hours. You've got to kind of get through that until we all worship together again. Your life is a life of worship. It's not that it ought to be, it is. I don't care whether you're a pastor, a doctor, a teacher, a cop, a pharmacist, a photographer, a homemaker, a house builder, white collar, blue collar, no collar. Your life is a life of worship. Our worship isn't limited to a specific place. Good grief if anybody knows that, it's the Fort Thomas campus. We've worshipped in a small movie theater and then in a large movie theater, then in an event center in which we set up and tore down for our service for years. Now we worship in a room that was formerly known as an event center since the event center went out of business, but we're only doing that until we worship next door into what used to be an antique center turned worship center. The Fort Thomas campus knows worship isn't limited to a certain place or a certain type of building. We love worshiping together. And we love singing together and hearing the word of God together. The space is important. And I can't wait for you to see the new space. But we don't only worship in a specific space, in a specific way, on a specific day. Our worship of Christ isn't limited like that. We worship Christ every day, regardless of what we're doing, because he's taken care of our greatest need. You say, fine. Why are you telling me all this? Here's why. Our campus is going through a transition right now. And as with all transitions, there's a combination of excitement and concern. For me, as your campus pastor, you need to know I'm like way more excited than I am concerned. It's not 50-50. It's like 95-5. Excitement is winning. 90-10. But I am both excited and concerned. I plan on sharing these excitements and concerns with you over the course of three sermons, one of which is today. The second will be our last service in this room when we have that, and the third will be our first sermon next door. But transmission number, transition number one, I said it before, I want our church to have more people in ministry serving less often. So is that like a tongue? Is that a trick question? I feel like I'm... I want our church to have more people in ministry serving less often. Whether or not your work for Jesus is worship of Jesus is mostly up to you. So let's test this out. When we're sitting in here, listening to the sermon, singing our songs, we're worshiping, right? Look, some of you are like, I know him. It's a trick question. See, none of the above. No, no, seriously. It's just a legit question. When we're sitting here and we're worshiping, look up, I gave it away. When we're sitting in here and we're hearing the word preached and we're singing songs, we're worshiping, right? And the answer is yes. Okay, so... 
if someone came to church on a week when they were to serve, served in their ministry role, and then went home, did they worship? (laughs) And therein lies perhaps the false dichotomy. Awkward silence. Pregnant pause. I say yes. If someone came to church on a week when they were to serve, served in their ministry role, and then went home, did they worship? Yes. If they did or did not, it's really up to them. But it's not that worship takes place in this 6,000 square foot rectangle. If you're not in the rectangle, you're not worshiping. You might be serving and doing your thing, but that's not worship. This is worship, sitting in the chairs and facing this way and hearing the message. Worship happens here. It happens in this way. This is one way worship happens. But I want to rip apart this false dichotomy that worship is in here and nowhere else because that's just not true according to the word of God. I don't think this is worship and that is something else. I don't think our welcome team welcomes people before they worship and then they sit to worship. I think they worship by welcoming people and then they worship by singing and sitting and hearing the message. I don't think our children's ministry team serves in the classroom or serves in the ministry, in the nursery, and then worships in the worship center. I think our children's ministry volunteers worship the Lord as they serve the children in their care and they worship the Lord as they sing and sit and hear the message. We have some people who, for a variety of reasons, serve in ministry faithfully on a rotation about once a month in their specific role. And do you know how many services they're here for on those days? One. And it's the service during which they serve, and then they go home, and I'm fairly confident they're still going to heaven. You say, but they didn't worship. I say, yes, they did. Not like that. I say, yes, they did. This week they worshiped by serving in their capacity, and then they went home. Just like this week, you worship by sitting here, and then you'll go home. Whether or not your work for Jesus is worship of Jesus is mostly up to you. Listen, I'm your pastor. I'm one of the elders. I know our church, not perfectly, but fairly well, particularly here at the Fort Thomas campus. I know many find it rather difficult to give us two services worth of their time. That's because they're not committed. That's not necessarily true. Do the math. Our services are about 65, 75 minutes long. Then there's about 40 minutes in between the service. And then there's another 65, 75 minute service during which you're either serving or sitting. That's over three hours. You might be in a season of life where that's not a big deal. Great. But you also might be in a season of life with your kids and they just can't swing that. You might be in a season of life where you can't swing that. You might be in a season of life where you can do that, but you don't want to do that. And so listen to me. If that's you, I think that's great. Because you know what? I want our church to have more people in ministry serving less often. And you can help me do that by serving consistently infrequently. By being plugged into an area of our church and serving on a rotating basis. Helping us to bear the blessed burden of ministry together. Versus having one person serving in one area each and every week until the Lord calls them home. Which I half wonder if they're praying for. You say, you're a pastor and you're telling your people that if they serve in a ministry role, 
They can go home when they're done. Do you not value job security? It's a rough time to be unemployed. I think whether or not your work for Jesus' worship of Jesus is mostly up to you. It's a mindset more than anything. Martha's actions weren't wrong. Her mind was. Her heart was. Every other time you see Martha in the scriptures, she's busy. She's doing stuff. We don't have to go there now, but in John chapter 11, we read about Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha. When Jesus arrives on the scene, you know who greets him? Martha. You know what Mary's doing? (laughs) Sitting in the house. Someone's got to get it done. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She's a great woman of faith. A phenomenal lover of Jesus Christ. She's still a doer, but she's a doer with a different mindset. She loves Jesus, has faith in Jesus, and as she does what she does, she worships. The moral of the story in Mary and Martha is not, you need to be more like Mary and you need to always sit. No, you need to have a worshipful mindset in what you do and in how you do what you do. Why? Because this is the portion that will never be taken from you and everything else can be. And so taking with us the hope of the gospel, the hope of the word of God, having sitting time with Jesus is vitally important. But it's not that all we need to do is sit like Mary. But we need to take what we learn and what we get from that time, sitting at the Lord's feet, and let that inform us as we do what we do in life, at school, at our jobs, in the marketplace, serving on a Sunday, hosting a community group, whatever you do. I really feel like we need to ditch this false dichotomy that says worshiping is sitting and real Christians give us two services because I don't think that's universally true or generally applicable. And I think whether or not your work for Jesus is worship of Jesus is mostly up to you and your mindset as you serve in ministry. Here's the thing. Just over two years ago, in an effort to, to, to really rally our children's ministry, I preached a sermon that was needed at the time, showing people the importance of our children's ministry. That it's not just we, we have something for the kids while we do the real ministry in here. Not true at all. It's not child care. As you entrust your children to us on Sunday mornings, we'll do more than ensure that they're safe and not carving their initials into the walls. We want to come alongside you as parents and teach them biblical principles. Now, granted, this looks different for a fifth grader than it does for a five-month-old. The five-month-old, we're just showing them love and kindness, hoping and praying that their first experiences with church, with Christians, are positive, that they'd associate this time each week with good. You're like, I just dropped off my kid. They did not associate me dropping them off with good. I know. Got to work that out over time. But the bottom line is, even from the youngest of age, even though we can't teach an infant the gospel in words, and they're looking back and responding to us, that would be super scary if an infant did that. We're showing them the love of Christ, trying to help make sure that they have a positive experience around the people of God so that they would associate Sunday mornings and church in the positive category of their life. And the fifth grader will actually teach them the word of God. We made a curriculum change a few years ago, and we've never looked back. We think it's great. It works great for our volunteers and our kids alike. None of that's changing. What is changing is this. I want our church to have more people in ministry serving less often. In that sermon I preached two years ago, I preached the importance of having consistent teachers who saw the kids each and every week. 
I spoke of the importance of having teachers build relationship with kids, know them by name, welcome them back, and when they've been gone, and pray for their needs, all that jazz. And let me tell you something, we've benefited from it greatly. We've reaped the benefits of it. I can't tell you how many times I'd bring up the mail from our mailbox and there was a note from one of my kids' Sunday school teachers saying they missed them recently and hope they see them again. That's so cool. So cool. However, as much as I'm for consistency, I want Fort Thomas to have more people in ministry serving less often. So in a very real sense, I'm essentially walking back that sermon from a few years ago, and here's why. Our current setup, the way we do serving at the Fort Thomas campus, and children's ministry and other ministries as well, makes space for precious few people to get involved because there are several areas in which the same people serve every week. There's those consistent people serving. They do what we call sit one, serve one. So they'll sit during one service and they'll serve during another service. Putting them on a rotation increases the opportunities for others to get involved in the many ministries of our church instead of limiting it it to those few who want to serve every week for the rest of their lives. Does that make sense? And yes, that's somewhat hyperbolic to say that, but not completely if people are committed to serving in their role for an indefinite period of time with no end date. Our current setup is good as long as it's good, but it's not good. When it's not good, it's actually really bad, and here's why. It's great to have someone serving in a particular role every week of their lives. God bless you if that's you. It makes it easier for the serve team leader to know that position is covered all the time. And that's great until it's not. Because when Mr. and Mrs. Every Weeker hit a season of life where they're unable to serve, or they have a baby, or they have to be out of town for a few Sundays, or if they move, now that, per- that position is vacant for how long? Forever. Whereas if Mr. and Mrs. Every Weeker was really Mr. and Mrs. Second Week of the Monther, that's English, If they were serving that on a rotation, that position is completely covered and served every Sunday except for the one that they vacated. Does that make sense? So we have more time to find a a great person to serve in that role if they're unable to serve versus having it perpetually vacant starting this Sunday until someone is willing to commit to serving in that role forever, which is a pretty big ask, and I don't like it. Here's another problem I see with our current setup and why I want our campus to make this switch. In many of our ministry roles, the expectation is that you serve pretty regularly, every week or almost every week. And the exception is the person who serves on some sort of a rotating basis. And so our current setup, in my opinion, has the expectation and the exception reversed. Because the expectation is that you'd serve every week, but the exception is that you might serve on a rotating basis. That person's the exception. I want to flip that. I want to flip that because at Fort Thomas, I want us to have more people serving in ministry less often. I want the norm among us to be that everyone is plugged into some ministry to some degree, and the norm is that you'd serve consistently and frequently, probably on a rotation of some sort. Now, You might be a person who feels uniquely called to serve more often. You say, I love third graders more than I love any demographic of people in my life, and I want to teach them all the time, every time. You may say, I love this class so much, I want to be there all the time. You might say, I love the welcome ministry so much, and it works for me. I love the worship team so much, and it works for me. I want to do this every week. 
That's great. We will always make exceptions for the exceptions. But I don't want that to be the expectation. Does that make sense? I want that to be the exception. You're like, you know what? It really works for me. I love serving in this capacity and worshiping in another service in, by sitting in, this, in the worship center. Great, great, great. We'd love to have you. But I want that to be the exception instead of the rule. We'll always make room for exceptions as much as we can. And so if you want to serve on an ongoing basis, we'd love to have you. But the exception would be someone who wants to serve in perpetuity, whereas the norm would be someone who wants to serve consistently and frequently. The norm needs to be more people serving less often. This enables more people to be plugged in and have less burnout. Why? Because we're all a different part of the body of Christ. I want Fort Thomas to be a place where more people serve less often. Why is it important that we dispel this false dichotomy of worshiping happens in here and it doesn't happen outside of here? Because I think there's several people who feel that they can't get plugged into a ministry because they feel like that means they have to be at church for two services. And so therefore, they stop and they say, I must be the Mary, I must sit here. And I'm saying, Martha was not a bad chick. She just had to change the way she did what she did. And so don't feel like if you sign up for something, you must give us two services or you're not a legit Christian. I don't think that's what the scriptures teach. Here's another reason why I want us to make this switch. I want more people serving in ministry less often because I actually think it places us in the unique position to reach more people. If the norm among us is people worship with us for one service, whether they're serving and worshiping through serving or whether they're worshiping by sitting, but the norm among us is that we worship for one service, that means their car is in the lot for one service. They're in our facility for one service. Their kids are in children's ministry for one service. And you know what that means? That means there's another parking space available for someone else in the opposite service and another space for another kid in children's ministry in the opposite service and less chance of a class filling up or a parking space being unavailable or a seat being unavailable. You say, Pastor Peter, I don't know if you've looked around, but we have like plenty of seats available and plenty parking available. And I understand that. That's true. We're not exactly at capacity right now. In fact, no churches, all three of our campuses are just at about 50% what was our pre-COVID normal. But friends, listen to me. I don't care what news website you're reading. I don't care what electoral college map you show me. This is not going to last forever. You must realize that this is not going to last forever. This is not the new normal. This is the new normal for now. If you think that in six years you're going to be wearing a mask in our worship services, I think you're off base. This is not going to last forever where people, where only 50% of our church family is back. I don't know how long it's going to last because I can't see the future, but I don't think that this is going to be the new normal. And I want to make the necessary changes now to be able to reach more people then. So much of Fort Thomas and the Newport campus has been reactive. And we've kind of had to be reactive because we're the ones blazing the trail, right? We were the first campus to be sent out of Florence and we went to Newport. What are we doing? Well, I don't know. We're blazing the trail with a machete as we go. And so we encounter things as we go and we make the changes as we go. I would love to not be reactive and say, wow, we're growing. What do we do now? I would love to now be proactive, see that coming because I really do believe that it's coming 
and make the necessary changes now for us to shoulder the ministry, the blessed burden of ministry together in a way that is sustainable so that we would be able to reach more people. Our church has steadily grown in the most adverse of conditions. Whether it was a dark movie theater, or listen, I know more about movie theaters than any non-movie theater employee should ever know. Let me tell you something. They're disgusting. You would do well to stream every movie for the rest of your life. Trust me. Oh. There's a reason they turn the lights out. It's not just for the movie. Disgusting. Anyway, whether it was a dark movie theater or an imperfect rectangle of a room like this or children's ministry being held on the other side of a parking lot, God in his kindness and mercy has seen fit to bring new people and to grow us consistently. Now, God doesn't trend. I don't like to pattern God. In my finite, simple mind, I just think if we grow under adverse conditions and circumstances, I don't see why we wouldn't grow with an actual facility that is custom-built for what we really think would serve our people best. Like having children and their parents under the same roof. Imagine that. And so I think that before long, God will bring new people and some of our old people back. And I would love, 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 love to be a church that has more people serving less often because I think that's what puts our church in the place it needs to be for the long haul. You say, all right, so now what? I don't know. This is what happens. I emailed the elders on Friday saying, I think this is the elders that go to our campus. I was like, I think this is what I want to do. I think it's a good opportunity. What if we switch the testimony service? And they were like, yes, we should definitely do that. And I was like, cool. Shoot, i got to write a sermon now. So I wrote it in the passenger seat of a Honda Odyssey on the way back from South Carolina yesterday. And so there wasn't a lot of lead time to set things up. It's not like I would love to say we have a table on the back and we have a sign-up sheet. We have none of that. But in the coming weeks, I'm going to do something that goes against every bone in my body. And I'm going to try to beef up our serve teams as much as possible in the month of December, where everybody's motto is, ain't nobody got time for that. But I'm going to hope and pray that you along with me will not just be thinking now, will not just be thinking for the here and now, but will be thinking in the long run for what our church needs to be and how we can be ready to serve the people that God brings among us. Now, don't like try to not make eye contact with me. Remember how you wouldn't make eye contact with the teacher so that he wouldn't call on you? It's not that. Don't see me walking towards you. Think, oh gosh, she's going to recruit me. No, it's not that. But I hope in the coming weeks, our ministry team leaders, and I hope and pray you'll join me in helping us make an important transition in the life of our church. Don't throw out Martha with the bathwater. Martha made a correction in her mindset that changed the way she did what she did. And it's my hope and prayer that we as a church have more people in ministry serving less often, that we would ditch this mindset of the only way to worship is in here. If you're not in here, you're not worshiping, and that we would do this for the benefit of people, both who are in our church and who aren't part of our church yet, and for the glory of God. Father in heaven, I pray that you would make sense of my words and that you would continue to lead us and guide us as a church family as we seek to make what I think is a change that you would have us make across the board. And so, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to take these steps of faith to prepare for what we believe you're doing among us and continue to do among us, Lord, I pray that 
this would serve our church family well in the long run, that there would be way less burnout and way more joy in serving, seeing it as an act of worship. Lord, help us to not look at worship as a specific act in a specific place, taking place at a specific time, but that we would see our lives as lives of worship. Worship of you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.